You're listening to the weekly podcast of the services at Stonegate Fellowship Church in Midland, Texas. For more information about Stonegate, visit StonegateFellowship.com. All right, let's uh, settle in and get started here this morning. Um, Steve Kulon said something about how ambitious I might be about getting through these notes. Um, I'm not even going to try, so I have a reason for why you have two pages front and back in front of you. I'll get to that here in just a minute. Let's, uh, let's begin our time in prayer. Let me uh, read over you some scriptures, and then we'll jump back into Hebrews. Psalm 119, verse 25, uh, the writer says, My soul clings to the dust, so give me life through and by and according to your word. When I've told of my ways, spoken of my life, you have answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me or help me, enable me to understand the way of your precepts. And I will meditate on the wondrous nature of your works. My soul melts away because of sorrow. So strengthen me again according to your word. Put false ways far from me. And please graciously teach me your law. I've chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, Lord. Please do not let me be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Father, thank you for this morning. Again, for the opportunity to freely gather. um, For the opportunity to open your word in freedom and without fear. This morning, what a privilege you have given us. Thank you for your ways, for your statutes, for your testimonies. And I thank you that as we will continue to look into the book of Hebrews, we'll be reminded that it is impossible for us to walk in your ways and your statutes and your testimonies, absent grace, mercy, and the sacrifice of your Son and our Savior. So we thank you for that. Would you open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word And as we go about this day of your grace, may people see and hear uh, the goodness and the graciousness and the wonder of our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, if you want to take your Bibles, and this thing really sounds weird, um, go to chapter chapter 9, 10, 9 and 10 basically of the book of Hebrews. Let me give you a little bit of a preview of the notes that are in front of you. Uh, Really the first two pages are a review from last week. They're the same notes that I gave you. My intention is to uh, highlight a few things. I I do not operate under the delusion that uh, people take notes home and and read them. Now, some of you may take offense at that and say, well, I do, but... um, I just sometimes attach to people the same things I would have done, which is probably not have read them. But if you do take these home and read them, what I hope to have done is kind of given you a mini commentary of the material. My my goal this morning is to get to the very back page that has the word exegesis on it. And I'm hoping to get to those really three verses in chapter 10 because they're, they're kind of the meat of the passage. But in the meantime, go back to what is essentially your number two. And um, 
I'm actually going to pick up with uh, letter C in, in, in your notes. So it would be under number four, letter C, as we begin to, con- well not begin, but as we continue to push in to what is really the meat of this, of this book. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 are absolutely the focal point of the book of Hebrews. You pull out chapters 8, 9, and 10, uh, you pull out the, the thesis, really, uh, of the writer of Hebrews, whoever he might be. If you pull out chapters 8, 9, and 10, you pull out the argument that's going to make 11, 12, and 13 work. If you pull out chapters 8, 9, and 10, uh, you make his argument in chapters 1 through 7 irrelevant. What he's pushing at in chapters 8, 9, and 10 is the absolute foundation it's the hope, it's, it's the reason behind him encouraging this congregation to continue to fight on. It is absolutely the basis of his argument. He is driving them to understand that Jesus is sufficient. He's reminding them, well he has reminded them already, heavenly beings, angelic beings, as we talked about last week, are not sufficient for what he's calling them to do. He's telling them their salvation is secure, but later on in chapter 10, he's going to tell them, Don't be afraid to give your life away. You used to not be afraid, but you're close to forgetting. And the whole basis of that is the hope that is 8, 9, and 10. And then he'll use chapter 11 to give some examples. He'll begin chapter 12 by telling them they're a part of something bigger than themselves. He'll remind them in chapter 13, by the way, your relationships with one another and then the church and leadership are critical. But the heart of the matter is 8, 9, and 10. So in chapter 9, I showed you last week, verse number 10. Chapter 9, verse 10. Take a peek at that. And I'm picking up in the middle of the phrase, but it's going to give us our bearings to sort of move forward. And he's talking about sacrifices and the temple worship. And in verse 10, he says, All of this stuff deals only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. And so if you pick up with letter C, and I'm going to kind of read to you, and then I apologize for that being a little bit uh, academic, but let's just begin with letter C. An inside-out reformation of relationship had to occur, and only Jesus was and is sufficient for this necessary reformation of being. Again, and I think I said this last week, and it's in the notes over and over if you take the time to read them. This whole thing called Christianity is not a reformation of behavior first. It is always a reformation of being. Now you look all throughout the scriptures, and the scriptures talk about the problem of sin. But as we've used this phrase over and over again in our fellowship, the problem of sin is not that you steal cookies from the cookie jar and you can fill in whatever sin that equates to in your life, however bad or however wicked or or not so wicked. That's not the overall problem. That is an expression of the problem. The reason that sin is such a devastating problem is because it is a result of a relationship harmed, a relationship gone bad, the relationship between ourselves and God the Father. Let me read your notes. I want to stay to those because I am contrary to Steve Coulon's opinion. I'm getting to the last page of these notes, so we will make it. So I'm going to keep reading to you. Number one, the little number one there. Again, a reminder. The only place in the Bible where this word reformation is used, it's really interesting, the more I study Hebrews, 
Whoever the writer of Hebrews is, is using words no one else uses. There's several other instances where the writer of Hebrews uses Greek words that nobody else uses. So when people start talking about the argument of whether it was Paul or Apollos or whoever, whoever this person was, in his audience, he sensed there was a need to communicate with some, some words that were a little more powerful. Uh, one, one quick example... When we travel and when we teach the gospel in foreign countries that don't have our same language basis and culture basis, there are times when you tell a, a, a people group in poverty that Jesus is the bread of life. And when you say that, oftentimes they say to themselves, well, that means Jesus is not for me because I'm not wealthy enough to have bread. And so you have to change your analogy. And you may have to say, well, Jesus is the rice of life. Now, there are some sticklers who say, you cannot change the word of God. I'm just telling you, if you don't understand bread because you've never eaten it, then what good is it for me to say Jesus is the bread of life? I mean, you have no idea what that is, but if rice to you is life, and it, it sustains you, and it's what feeds you, then I'm going to tell you, hey, Jesus is rice, man, and eat him up. So what's happening in the book of Hebrews is this word reformation. He is reminding them Jesus changes the entire ball game. So number two, the reformation reality is critical for an audience needing to know for certain that a sufficient path of redemption, relationship, and security had been inaugurated. A reformation of what they knew of religion relating with the glory and the holiness of God had taken place. The audience knew animals did not change their being. The question remained of whether this Jesus could sufficiently reform their being. They knew that something about them had to be changed in order for them to be able to be in the presence and in relationship with a holy God. What was very visible to them was they could not enter into the holiest place that's why this, this temple issue keeps coming up in this letter is he is reminding them they are welcome through Jesus to fellowship through a reformed being and relationship with the holy God whether the temple stood or they lost their lives. Number three, more than any other group after the resurrection, post-resurrection, this group was seeing the physical evidence of religion crumble and disintegrate in front of them. They were watching their very religious existence being overrun and destroyed. The physical manifestations of religion, indeed of their salvation, were shattering. And the need for a promise of security in relationship to God was very real. They still had to have a hope in their heart. For this audience, the promise and destination of heaven or hell was always real. That was not the question. But the inward hope of restored relationship and secured salvation was all the more critical and necessary. I think I told you two weeks ago, remember when John, when he was in prison, asked his disciples to go to Jesus and say, are you the one? Because John knew he was probably going to lose his life. And he in fact did for just telling someone what they were doing was, was wrong, who was in leadership. He wanted to know, am I secure? To put it in our terms, the terms of our author, are you the reformer? Are you bringing something new? Are you the lamb who has come for the salvation of the world? And Jesus answers John not with, you go tell John, you keep on. He says, you tell John what he has seen. This audience needs to know, we're going to lose our lives. 
It is going to cost us. We just have to be reminded. And as we'll see later on in chapter 10, the author's a little bit concerned that the church isn't ready to endure. That maybe they have backed up. Maybe they're not ready to keep moving forward in this fight. Number four, religion and even what they once knew would no longer suffice. A necessary and sufficient relational reformation was essential for the anchoring of the soul. Could Jesus reform their being? The Bible talks about in this, in this passage, um, let me real quick see if I can move you towards it. Go to chapter 9 and find your way to verse 26. Find your way to verse 26. Chapter 9 verse 26. He's talking again about a high priest and how the sacrifices of the high priest still couldn't answer the being question. And in verse 26, picking up again in the middle of a paragraph, he says, For then he, that is the priest, would have had to suffer repeatedly. Actually, he's referring to Jesus, I apologize. He would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And that's an interesting phrase. Because I don't know about you, but if you, if you think a little bit about what you just read, in my life, Sin is still present. I don't know about anybody else, um, so I'll confess. To me, it's present. Uh, I'm still stealing cookies from the cookie jar at times. Does that resonate with anybody? Anybody else stole a cookie lately? Okay, I know you have. And so, so what, how, do I, how do I deal with that phrase when it said, Jesus put away sin? What did he put away? I know I'm a Jesus. I know I'm a follower of Jesus. I know Jesus has saved me. His spirit bears witness with my spirit. I am his child. I don't know I'm saved because I was baptized in church. I don't know I'm saved because I joined Stonegate. I do not know I'm saved because I prayed a prayer. I know I'm saved because there was a time when I surrendered my life to him and I know by the spirit bearing witness with my spirit, he changed my being. There was something different about the person that I was. And I hope that's the testimony of your life as well. It's also a story of salvation that sometimes people of my tradition have to wrestle with. Because people of my tradition sometimes are um, religious magicians more than they are people of converted lives. We tell kids, if you'll just pray this prayer, Jesus will save you. And that kid sometimes knows no more about what they're doing in the exchange of their soul than a man on the moon, so to speak. My question to you, and it's, it's pushing into the life of the writer of Hebrews as well, I don't care what you've said. What I care about is whether there has been a surrender of who you are in exchange for who Jesus is. And when the writer of Hebrews says he put away sin, I mean, let me show you what he's talking about. Maybe it'll help you a little bit. And we'll be here over uh, uh, Easter Sunday. Go back to the left to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Indeed, there are sins. We sin. We miss the mark. But we miss the mark not because of what we do. We miss the mark because of who we are. 
And so when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I want to show you something. And this is, it's, it's interesting how you can put these two uh, books side by side and still have a very difficult time determining if one guy wrote both of them. But when the Bible talks about in Hebrews that Jesus put away sin, he, what he did was he put away the impossibility of me being made alive again. Let, let me explain that to you. When Adam took of the fruit, whatever it was, he died and he was then a sinner. He, it was incapable for him to be alive. When Jesus spoke in John chapter 10, he said, I have come that you might have the inability not to sin. Did he say that? No, he did not. He said, I have come that you might what? Have life and to the fullest. There had to be something done that reformed my being even though my actions were incapable of expressing that at times. Gentlemen, you are incapable of being holy in your actions. But you are made holy by the completed work of Jesus and have an opportunity to walk in the new being that he has made you. You cannot behave holy enough to be holy. But you can behave out of holiness through a reformation of your being. And that's what Christ did. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's the passage I preach out of every Easter. This one will be no exception. I hope, by the way, if, you, uh, are, if you're not coming to Stonegate on Sundays, I want to tell you, if you missed Jay Mayo's message this past Sunday, you need to download it, you need to watch it, you need to listen to it, and then be back and hear him this coming Sunday. Um, it's probably one of the, uh, you know... It's probably one of the top three messages in the entire history of this church. So I'll, I'll let him be the third best. Anyways, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56. Verse 56. Paul has been talking about if there is no resurrection, then there's absolutely no Christianity. There's no faith. There's no basis. Let's go party is really what he says. But in verse 56, he said, The sting of death is sin. Now, I hope you've meditated on this passage before. But he says, the, what keeps grinding away at you, what keeps poking away at you, what the stinger that resides in you and reminds you of how dead you are, is sin. The sting of death is sin. Death entered into what was not supposed to be dead, a relationship between us and God through Adam. And Jesus came to deal with that reminder, that sting. The sting, the reminder, the ever-present problem of death is sin. It is action. It reminds me. When you and I sin as a follower of Jesus, and hopefully our hearts prick us inside, it is not a reminder of you are lost. It is a reminder that apart from the work of Jesus Christ, you would still be dead and have nothing you could do about it. But because of what Jesus has done, you can still walk in life. And some of you need to hear that because you are so hindered in your relationship with God because of a struggle you have. And the problem is you don't even know how to walk and how alive you are. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin. Watch this. And the power of sin is the law. Now think about what he just told you. The power of sin is the law. Rules and regulations that keep reminding you of how 
you have no ability to be right. Then it goes on to say this, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came, now go back to Hebrews chapter 9. And when it says he came to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, he put away my inability to be made right through the law. He put away, that he pulled the stinger out, so to speak, and, and has made me alive in him. He put away this curse, which possibly you've heard that before. Now, go back to your notes. I hope you'll take some time to think about what we just talked about. You know, really, oftentimes when we tell people about Jesus, we tell them how rotten they are and that they're sinners. That's true. That is absolutely true. But I would tell you, I think, where we have to start when we want to tell people about Jesus is we must start with the fact that they are amazing, one-of-a-kind, miraculous creations in the image of God. And show them their value. They are so valuable as his wonderful creation. All the guys and the gals you work with that turn your stomach when they tell you what they did over the weekend or you hear about it. Those are one of a kind, miraculous, created in the image of God people. God does not look at them and say, you are the sorriest scum I've ever seen. I hope you go to church and pray a prayer and get saved so I can like you. He loves them. He cherishes them. And what we've done as a church is try to make them feel even worse about themselves. But the problem we have with that cheapening of the gospel is you guys are surrounded by people who look at their life and go, my life's pretty good. It's actually all right. I'm not cheating on my wife. My business is good. I just don't want to have anything to do with what you call life. And they have yet to be shown what a valuable person they are in the eyes of God. And we're so caught up in sin being equated with drugs, drinking alcohol, and dance rather than a redemption and a reformation of my being that I can walk into life and show that at work. That it's time for us to see people the way God sees them. And I'm more guilty than the rest of us. But to see them as one-of-a-kind miraculous creations that Jesus came to introduce a reformation that is more than behavior modification and sin management. But it is a change of their being. It doesn't make them Baptists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, or Bible church people. It makes them what God created them to be. A reformation of being. Not people doing church, but people doing life. Which is it of you? Do you do life in a different, fuller way? Or is it behavior modification and sin management? Let's go to the third page. What did this reformer Jesus do or accomplish? I'm going to read through this because I want to get to verse 19, Steve Kulon. Number one, Jesus offered his own blood. I'm going to do this because you already know this. A sinless sacrifice for our justification in the propitiation of the wrath of God. He stood in the presence of God's wrath against sin and what was against us. And I've given you some cross-references there. 
He offered his own perfect blood once and for all to finally deal with sin's stranglehold on man and the destruction of his being. Every time you do the thing you wish you could stop doing and you get on your knees and desperately beg for God to forgive you, and I think all of you who have tried to walk with Jesus know what I'm talking about. The more and the longer you pray, although it might... Here's, here might be the picture for you. Let me help you see the picture. Although we might think that God is going, oh, keep going, keep repenting, keep repenting, the reality of your relationship with him is, why don't you get up and let me love on you because there's nothing you can do to make me accept you more in spite of what you've done. You cannot pray long enough. You cannot pray hard enough. I have redeemed you. You're mine. And any of you, who have had a wayward son or daughter turn home, the discussion of what they've done is never the first thing you discuss. But the desire to see them just walk through the door and hug them is all that you care about. In fact, if you've ever experienced it or you've been that prodigal, you know that the most precious thing is that there's rarely even a discussion about it. In fact, you know as the loving parent, oftentimes when the child wants to discuss it and say, I'd really like, you say, you know what, we might discuss that later. What matters is, you were lost, and now you're what? You were blind, but now you see. Please understand, it is a reformation bought and purchased once and for all by Jesus. Number three, he has taken the place of authority on my behalf to intercede for me. Uh, let me have you write down a passage of scripture. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. Romans 8, verse 31 and 32. Another cross-reference to, to this issue of Jesus interceding for me, cheering for me, fighting for me, uh, speaking for me, advocating for me, whatever word you want to use. Number four, he provided a once and for all finished work of salvation and an ongoing transformation that need not be repeated but only received and appropriated. The word appropriated is huge. I've given you examples before. My greatest struggle is not that I um, need to quit sinning. My greatest struggle is I have yet to appropriate a power that's available to me called the Spirit alive in me. It's called walking in the Spirit, not in the flesh. I've given you the stupid example a hundred times of when I had my first corporate job outside of being a commissioned salesperson, and I wouldn't take people out to eat, I wouldn't take them to play golf, because as a commissioned salesperson, I was, that was out of my pocket. But then my boss called me in the office and said, would you start entertaining customers? You have, a, you have an account to do that. And I had to learn to appropriate that kind of ability. And, I, and some of us need to learn to appropriate what is inside of us, the Spirit of God. Number five, secured my transformation, entrance, and security no matter what may come. We'll see that here in just a minute. So why, why does all this matter to our audience and to us? Beginning in chapter 10, verse 19, he starts to tell us. So chapter 10, verse 19, he uses the, this huge transition word in the Bible, therefore, therefore my brothers and sisters... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over, or a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean. He's using these phrases, I'll tell you in a minute, for a reason. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast. The confession of our hope without wavering, because he who promised 
is faithful. Skip over to verse 36 or 35, 35. Therefore, this is the verse that tells you he's worried about him. Don't throw away your confidence. It has a great reward. You have need of endurance. Go back to your notes. Why does all this matter to our audience and then to us? Number one, then just like now, challenge and change and progress and growth are the norm for every follower of Jesus. They're entering into a season of struggle that is going to change their lives. They need to know, is the anchor going to hold? Number two, the desire to quit or at least not to try or at least not fight so hard is common. You're pro- you may, I, I want to be careful the way I say this. Most of us are probably not going to be faced with the loss of our life because of our confession of Christ. Now, I want to be careful with that because you just, the way you see the world going again, we could, you never know. You never know. So I don't want to make you that promise because I can't. But many of us can quit fighting and still look like good Christians in our culture. You can quit fighting the fight of faith and running the course set before you and still look the same to everybody else. You can still show up on Sunday. You can teach a kid's class. You can lead in students. You can work in the parking lot. You can come to men's Bible study. You can have a a fish on the back of your car. Uh, You can uh, vote for the right people. You can do all kinds of things in our community. And really, sort of even in certain areas of the country. And never pick up a weapon and still be considered a soldier. It's like buying workout clothes and walking around in them. I mean, it, the problem is sometimes it's, you can't cover it. But, but in the case of being a follower of Jesus, you can cover it. You even know how to pray in public. You don't mind praying over the food. You know how to pray the prayer. You know, God bless his food and to the nourishment of our bodies and our bodies, to your service, blah, blah, blah. I don't even know where that prayer comes from, actually. I just, I'm not going to chase that squirrel. But anyways, you, um, it's easy to enlist and never serve. For this audience, that's not true. It will cost them. And, and I'm not asking you to go sell everything, but, I, but it does beg the question, am I fighting for the faith and running the course set before me, or am I quitting? Have I quit? Only you know if you've quit. And then number three, what Jesus has done, what must be fought through, and what each must do cannot be overstated or over-dramatized. And we'll get to that. But I want to tell you, when the writer here gets to the following verses, and let me show you those verses. Look at verse 24. When he gets to verse 24, and he says in chapter 10, verse 24, so let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Those verses were never meant to promote high attendance Sunday at church. You don't promote high attendance Sunday when you're talking about soldiers needing to come together and say it's still worth it. There's a whole different meaning behind those verses than just guilt over the fact that I have been in church. So go to the last page of your notes and I want to dig through verse 19 through 23 and I want you to see of all the places we've been in the book of Hebrews, 
When you start digging into the next few verses, the words he uses are a culmination of the argument he's been making and the life he's calling you to. There's some amazing words here. All of you could research these words on your own if you had the right computer program. So this is not my brilliance. This is just using the right tools. So let me show you again. Let's begin with verse 19. So my brothers and sisters, by the way, that word brothers there is not just men. It is a brothers and sisters word. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places, look at the definition on your piece of paper. This word confidence, and again, rarely used in the biblical writings at all. It's, a, it's almost a completely unused word the writer of Hebrews uses, and it's not a religious word. A political term that presupposes democracy. Kind of interesting. It is a right to say anything. An openness to truth and candor. Check this out. The total opposite of that which is brought on by the hiding associated with fear. Now, that should remind you, if it doesn't, you're not a failure, you just haven't been told, what happened in Genesis 3? And some of you have been in Stonegate and have heard me talk about this. Genesis 3, when you have Adam and Eve commit this sin and they're separated from God, God goes to find them, quote unquote, find them in the garden. And he says, where have you been? And Adam says, we covered ourselves and hid because we were afraid. First time the word fear is ever used in the Bible. We were afraid because the relationship had been broken. All of you know what it is. I'll, I'll depersonalize the example. If you have a dog at home that you love and the dog messes up and you look at the dog and the dog puts its head down and it runs away and it knows it's messed up. It is in fear. And so I'm not calling you a bunch of dogs. Don't leave here. If you're listening to it on the podcast, it's not. I had a funny thing happen today. You have no idea what happens in this room. Um, the other day, I made the statement in the service that culture eats strategy for lunch. I don't know if you were in church and I talked about that. And a guy was in the audience who apparently liked that statement. So he made it a part of his presentation in some deal he did in Los Angeles, which I was like, where's my money? So anyways, I, uh, he, and, and as he's making the statement in his presentation in Los Angeles, mind you, the week of the sermon I preached... A guy walks up to him in the audience and says, you go to Stonegate Fellowship, don't you? That's crazy. And I, I, so anyways, I, my wife keeps reminding me, you better be careful, it's all recorded. But anyways, I'm not calling you a bunch of dogs who put your heads down and run because you pooped on the floor. I'm just saying, Jesus came to completely, let's go back to our key word, reform what happened in the garden. See, the relationship was marred, warped, destroyed. It died. And out of that death, Adam hid under even the presumption he could hide. And he said, I was afraid of you. The writer of Hebrews is telling you with a very critical word, let us therefore with confidence completely at peace, run in with total truth and total candor. Actually, the way Job described it, naked you came in, naked you will leave, and naked you can run in. I'll use another stupid example. There's few of you who have had your diaperless kids run into your room and go, oh my word, you just said come on in. And the writer is telling these people, understand the magnitude of what he's saying. 
They, for their entire lives, have watched a system that said, you do not qualify to enter this holy place. And he chooses a word that couldn't be any more relevant and any more relevant to their society to say, there is no door, no curtain, there is nothing that can keep... He is telling them, you can run into the holiest place, you can run in naked and without fear, and you can say anything you want to say. He's, he is talking about the realities of a reformation that are nearly impossible for this group to even comprehend. And he's telling you the same thing. It is a massively important word. It is not just, it, it is not this word of, of you can, it's, it's okay. It, it is boldness. You can't talk enough about this. And then keep reading. So my brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holiest places, the holy place, by the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way he opened up for us through the curtain. And we, we already know what's going on here. Verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's Jesus. Now verse 22. Let us draw near. Now look back at your notes and I've given you some definitions. Let us draw near, coming fully into the company. It's again, he's building on this term. You get to absolutely, you don't have to barely slide in. You don't have to sort of peek under the curtain. Just come completely in. Come totally in. And then let's look at some more words. Let us draw near with a true heart. Now go back to your notes. What does he mean by the word true? That which has not only the name and semblance, watch this, but also the real nature corresponding to the name. Now guys, listen, I don't know about you, but there are times my heart is not true. That's a reality of the fact that I still live in the right now, but the not yet of who I am in Christ. But when God the Father sees me come into his presence, he sees my heart as true because of the finished work of Christ. I don't have to enter into the presence of God and say, I am such a loser. What I should do is step boldly into the presence of my king and say, I have not been what you have made me to be. Thank you that you see me as what you have made me. Empower me to live out of this true heart. Your nature has been reformed in Christ. It is not partially reformed. It is a new nature. No more than your adopted child is not completely your adopted child. You have reformed that child's being. And they are 100% your namesake. Because of grace and redemption and reformation. They are yours. And you don't tell the adopted child, you can come into my room after a few years when you finally earn the name. You bestow on them a name and every right is theirs. And it is who you are. True. Behaving is true all the time? No. True in nature? Absolutely. Experienced completely? No way. Realized one day? Absolutely. Let's keep going. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance. Your definitions. Most certain confidence. The writer is using a word that says, you have no space to doubt who you are. None. Absolutely none. So let's draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Now remember, faith, important concept. I draw near to him in full assurance of faith. Faith is not some 
you know, mysterious idea. I draw near because of the foundation I trust in, which is the finished work of Christ. That's what it is. I remember one day, kind of stupid story, but I was uh, in college and, and, and not particularly pursuing holiness. And I went to this bar. And, um, and it was this bar that the college I was attending, all the football players went to, of which I was not. But um, one of the middle linebackers and the nose guard and several guys in the offense were my good friends. And so um, I drew near to the door. And, um, and this guy in the front, this bouncer dude, he says, you can't get in. And I go, really? Um, so I said, is so-and-so in there? Yeah, why do you want to know? I said, could you, could you get him? Absolutely. So they came down and they go, oh, come right on. And I was like, eh, meh. So anyways, I just, full assurance. And uh, anyways, so let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. My faith was not in the fact that I could get in, but it was in the fact that they were in and they brought me in. So with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Why does he use that phrase? The reason he uses that phrase is because the audience he's writing to with all, in all reality were still practicing sprinklings and washings of all different kinds from Jewish religious practice. And he's using that term to show them what is literally happening in their heart is what they're trying to symbolize through different actions. Look, look at the words I've given you because they're very important words. Sprinkled clean literally reads, it's hard to translate into English, but it literally reads, after having our hearts sprinkled clean and remaining clean. I've given you some details there. This word is a perfect participle, meaning a completed action with right now results. It does not have to be repeated. It means it's been done, it's completed, and the results remain. And look at the next word, bodies washed. It literally means, so he's telling them grammatically and technically in the Greek language. And by the way, Hebrews was written in the most exalted Greek of any book in the New Testament. The highest academic Greek of any book in the New Testament. What he's telling them is there's no longer a need to do these things. They've been done in Christ. Bodies washed, literally reads, after having our bodies washed and remaining washed. Again, a perfect participle means a completed action with right now results. Verse 23. Because of all this, listen to what he said, because of all that is yours, bold access, completed washing, presence, and all this, let us hold fast. Go back to your notes. It's written a different way, but this is what he's saying in this, this fancy Greek. Let us continue to hold fast. So he uses a word to his audience. He's saying, oh, please, please, please keep fighting. Don't let go. Pretty long definition. This phrase is an exhorting subjunctive. Actually, the technical word is an oratory or auditory subjunctive, but the word exhorting kind of is better. With the sense of subjectivity. In other words, he's telling them, hold on, but in his heart he's saying, I hope they do, I hope they do, I hope they do, I hope they do. He's concerned. And the technical nature of the language expresses that. This is a phrase that helps us to see the audience's need to be reminded of who they are, whose they are, and how important their lives are. In a very real sense, there is a fear or a question on the author's part. His audience might not hold fast. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 are the heart of this book. And he's expressing his heart in this, this little part right here. So let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. The other, the other word is remaining unmoved. 
Paul uses a similar phrase in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, because Jesus has been crucified and resurrected, it's not in vain, which is where the series came from that, that Jay's preaching through. And then finally, he who promised is faithful. This simple phrase is the hope of all the exhortation of the author. At no point is there the idea that any merit or first mover ability of a follower of Jesus primarily empowers this life of purpose. He says, draw near because he who promised will not fail you. And he won't fail you either, guys. Let's pray together. So Father, I thank you for the reminder so far that there is no angelic being that can do what needs to be done for my soul. There is no great hero of the faith like a Moses who can fix the problem of my soul. But there is a great high priest, a lamb slain before the foundation of the world, God the Son, who was a complete and is a complete and is our satisfactory satisfaction for our heart, for our lives. Would you help each of us to confidently enter the holy places, your presence, because of the blood of Jesus? May we draw near because you have given us the ability to draw near. And today, may we hold fast the confession of our hope, a hope not in religion, a hope not in the church, but a hope in Jesus Christ who is faithful. And because of that hope, may we fight the fight of faith, stir up each other to love and good deeds, to meet together, to encourage one another, because the day will and is drawing near. Help us to not throw away our confidence. It has great reward and help us to endure. And in the weeks ahead, if your grace allows it, help us to see even more the larger picture we're a part of and how we must continue to fight this fight. May these men fight well today. May they preach well in their offices or in the field or wherever uh, you would orchestrate their course and their path today. And please help them to know um, that uh, the words they say, the things they do matter in the body of Christ. As the, Paul tells us in Ephesians, each part working properly for the kingdom of God. Help them to preach well today. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day. Thanks for being here. See you next week.